All right, welcome back to another episode of Language for Liberation. This is your boy, Bakari Ibrahim, a.k.a. O.G. Baca. I'm joined by my illustrious, uh, honorable, agitator of the year, philosopher, <laughs> Mr. Barrett Holmes Pittner. Um, how you doing this week, man? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I, agitator of the year. That's a good one. I had, you know, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good title to have. That's a nice, yeah, man. nice moniker. I, I, I say that for you because um, when you have to, you know, pitch out new philosophies to people, it's kind of like, you know, you have to keep like pushing it on them and to really get them to understand. And it's definitely a revolutionary thought. So oh, and yeah, agitate no. is, is a great word. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't think it was wrong. I just had it heard. <laughs> Dope, man. Well, um, you know, we're back with another episode of Language for Liberation. Um, a lot has gone on this week that you know we have to talk about you know the world is ethnociding as usual in many different ways and people are reacting to it uh in all ways and you know of course we have a word to kind of you know get us through the times and that but you know let's uh get right into it let's start with like you know the happenings of the week let's talk about jacob blake man another instance of police brutality and you know basically a man in kenosha is it kentucky Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Okay, Kenosha, Wisconsin. Oh, excuse me. Um, so let's start with uh, let's, by talking about Jacob Blake. A 29-year-old man in Kenosha, Wisconsin, was shot in the back five, uh, seven times by police uh, after he was, you know, trying to break up an altercation uh, and was going to his car and, you know, was shot by police in front of his uh, children, uh, which is crazy. But I think what's even crazier about this situation, or at least shines a different light on the situation, is that he's actually still alive. Um, he's paralyzed from the waist down right now, but he is still alive and you know has survived this incident, which to me makes me wonder, you know, what happens now? You know, someone who lives to tell the story of uh, such an instance. But Barrett, what what are your reactions to you know the situation? You know, how did it land on you this week? And you know. How does it fall into all the things we talk about? Yeah, man, it's these things always hit me in a peculiar way. Like I people always talk about like they're tired of being tired and all that kind of stuff. And and like, I guess I have that to a certain extent. But like I look at it really, everything's like quite philosophically and it's more it's just more of like a continued demonstration of America's like inability to like solve this problem. Like, I think the thing that frustrates me the most is I think we have a a discourse where people genuinely believe that like America knows how to solve this. And I just don't think within our current, like, language or perspective we have any framework for how to stop this type of stuff like that's just not a thing that america has ever done and you know like one of the things that that frightens me is sometimes i wonder if the present how violent that is in comparison to other times in america because yeah. I think we have greater exposure to like all the violence, but that's largely due to technology. 
and so I think the 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 scariest part could be like maybe to maybe right now is like still one of the best times to be black. That's yeah. Like that's the <laughs> part that's really like alarming as I think about all this stuff regarding like the violence, but also like the cultural capital that we have as a community to to like try to make change. Mm-hmm. And so I just like it's one of those things where like if I stop and just like just think about it, like or not just necessarily think about, it, but just like feel about it. Of course, I get like sad and I don't want to like yeah. do things. But I guess so. This is like a weird thing to say, but I'm quite a I'm I'm an emotional person, but I don't put like my emotions first. Like I think a lot of times putting yeah. your emotions first is like putting the cart before the horse. I th- I think a lot, and then I like the emotions are like the second thing because that's I think that's the most productive place for them to be sometimes. And so you know, initially the thoughts are, I don't I, I I'm curious what happens next because I don't think we have a structure where people really even can like comprehend or imagine mm-hmm. what America without this amount of violence is. And then I wonder if this amount of violence is less than what's been the norm. We just see more of it. And then that's right. like, that's even more disturbing. I felt the same way. Like, is it the, the best of times and the worst of times, you know? Right. And, it, and thinking about like my parents and kind of what they've seen through the civil rights movement and, and, you know, what they've seen through what they've grown up in, you know, that passiveness that you get that comes with like at older age and seeing this like over so much time, is it like, is it the same thing or am I like, am I just going through what they went through? You know, like the thing I think about a lot is like when I was growing up, like my parents didn't really talk a lot about their childhood. They, if they did, it'd be like, you know, fun stuff. But like my parents grew up in the South in the sixties. They, they were around when, you know, Kennedy got assassinated and King right. got assassinated and all these Pretty much anybody that cared about black people, uh, that person right. just got murdered. And, and uh, you know, I think about why they don't talk about that stuff. But it's pretty obvious when you think about it that why would you want to tell your kids those stories? Especially right. if you're trying to live in, like, a multicultural, diverse, like, environment where, like, you if you tell your kids what your upbringing was like, they probably would just hate white people. Like they right. would just hate white people. It's, right. <laughs> it's just how it is. And, and so to a certain extent. More than they already do is the first thing that I just thought, right. It's like, like what, you, you would not have a, a more positive perspective of white people if black people told the stories of their existence more fully. That's just like how it is. And so sometimes I wonder about the surprise and the trauma that like black people go through as these murders happen. If we're surprised because the previous generation chose to not tell us the severity of their trauma because they wanted to shelter us from that pain right that is like 
that's just such a like a a profound thing to think about where in a way it's like you kind of go into your society half blind because like if you see everything you'll just be like angry and traumatized and so maybe it's like better to be half blind but like does that help you solve the problem is it is it like a like did they look at it like a ignorance is bliss like did we culturally look at it as like a ignorance is bliss when like handing it down to the next generation or really and not just that but just like you know the things that you that it's like well i'm not going to ruin your childhood with this you right. know <laughs> and, also, and also like it's not fun for them to tell those stories like, yeah it's not like, good for them to bring it up so even if it's not like an intentional, like, I don't want to tell my kid all these horrible things, it will be like, I just don't want to relive that. Just like people that are like, went to Vietnam. <laughs> like, right. Don't talk about it, bro. They don't talk <laughs> about it. Like, don't talk about that shit. <laughs> exactly. Like if you're black and you were, you know, between the ages of 10 and 18 and they're in the civil rights struggle, you aren't going to be talking about a lot of that stuff. Like that's right. just how like maybe if you're one of like the 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 figures like your John Lewis one of like those like that small sliver of people right who just had like in like a, a a superhuman level of like fortitude and commitment and like almost died like four times mm-hmm. but like right. didn't you know like what what would you've almost died like three times you're like oh that's all that's just what it is hey, man, that's what life is right <laughs> this is how we live this is you how we get it real ca- you know it's not casual but you can talk about it because like you survive but like that's not how it is for a lot of people and so right tragically and so i can totally understand why a whole group of people wouldn't want to talk about their formative years because like it's just filled with that much terror so much trauma and now like the new generation we are getting the latest iteration of this terror and it's like it's hard to like gauge it in the scope of american existence because it it to in in my eyes it's almost like we're trying to figure it out when we could have figured it out by now or it could have been passed down so we at least have we at least be a little bit more wiser as a nation to confront it um, in that way and going back to your like half blind comment you know it's interesting when like you know just thinking about us going in half blind and you know white culture which is just celebrating every win that's not even a win you know and <laughs> and yeah. you know just just passing down a philosophy of you know endless power that empowers them to approach situations in, in different ways than we do so it's like that constant shackle yeah, it's, it's like, yeah. and it's a society dominated by people who can't see. Like, the half-blind right. man is, like, the wisest person in the room, you know? <laughs> like, exactly, exactly. So, you know, thinking on to, like, the, the ongoing trauma and, you know, leading into our word this week, I want to talk to you about, you know, the NBA strike that happened. Yeah. Uh, this week. <laughs> to be honest, like, frankly... I just don't think we should have the NBA this rest. I I don't think we should have the NBA or sports period for the rest of the year. Just not have it. I shut it down. I completely agree. You know, I was on the, you know, even before the NBA season started and, you know, to be honest with you, NBA is really the only sport that I would have turned on 
TV at this time. And, you know, even when it was discussed about coming back, I was like, you know, they don't need to come back and just for player safety. And also, you know, I, I thought about the distraction appeal, you know, that during coronavirus and during, you know, the political unrest, it was, you know, people need to see this and sports just kind of hampers away from this. But what was interesting about the NBA strike to me was kind of to your point about like the ongoing trauma and was that you know, the players basically come out and say that, you know, this is affecting us, you know, we can't play through this, you know, and we've been kind of protesting about this, you know, we've been wearing the, we've been wearing protest t-shirts, you see it on the back of our shirts, you know, we play so we can get this message out here, and then now it's, um, there's this frustration that I'm still playing through this pain, and this is still happening, I feel and hurt, so now we're going on strike, and now we're not playing. So, I was uh, literally kind of shocked to see it after a long day of work and not looking at media all day and then like opening my phone and saying like, damn, like no games tonight. Yeah. <laughs> like I, literally at the time I would turn on a game. So, um, you know, what are your thoughts? How, how did it land on you this week? I thought it was great that they, that they didn't, that they striked and then that they didn't have games. I thought it was fantastic when I heard that the Clippers and the Lakers were like, allegedly saying just we just need to end the season end it all. I thought that was right. perfect and and you know this is going to sound strange but I remember when the baseball was coming back and baseball is like the most like the worst organized of like all the public all the major sports it seems to handle corona and all these like white people that play baseball were getting COVID and one of them in a press conference said how he thinks sports are like the reward you have for like a good society and so if you don't, if your society is like total crap, like you shouldn't, you shouldn't have sports. It just seems, That's fair. I like that. I was, I was like, yeah, I forget who the, I forget who the athlete was, but you know, it was definitely a white guy. And I was like, yes, I agree. And you think about it and you look at like all these European countries that are bringing their sports back, sports coming back are, is, is essentially like the reward that they get for like mm-hmm. managing COVID properly. Like, you know, the sports didn't come back until, like, the rest of the nation was, like, was sorted. And they had the procedures. And the U.S., like, we're just a bad nation. Like, that's just how it is. It's all for show. It just constantly kind of comes back to peacocking and all for show and And, and keep the machine going. When you look at sports, right now, it's basically a bunch of people – America's mostly white, so it's fair to say mostly white people that mm-hmm. are just saying, like, we need these black people, these rich black people, to perform for us so that we have a distraction from the nightmare that we're creating. And, right. like, I just don't think that should be black people's job. I don't think right. we should have a structure, like, the, the, the wealthiest, most powerful black people in the country their obligation is to like placate or entertain uh, an, an inept society and distract them from all of the all of the harm that that the society causes, and that can be the harm caused by continually shooting black people in the street. It can be the harm of just not caring if people get like a deadly disease, like so much stuff. And and I just and and another thing that like really really annoys me about american sports and if you compare american sports to sports around the world like Mm -hmm. the owners of american sports teams 
have so many like safety nets that ensures that like no matter what they keep on making money like if their team is horrible yeah. and they're incompetent doesn't matter they make money the players have an obligation to show up and perform and and do work for an incompetent white guy who owns a team and that's it and other countries if you are an incompetent owner of a sports team like that team's just going to collapse yeah like that's just they like you just going to go out of business like this is a competition to be at the top you have to be elite like and that's top to bottom that's just not the athletes in america the only people that need to be elite and for a sport team to be successful are the athletes that's really it if the you know and successful in a financial way it's just making money if they want right. to make money and then win trophies then the owners and the managers and all those people need to be they need to be good too but the baseline it's like they ensure that the ownership just has a has a, an amazing crop of really talented, primarily African Americans that just m- ensure that they make money forever, and just, they just get to like be incompetent. And you know, I think it makes sense for black athletes to hold ownership to a higher standard now, and yeah. to show people that if they don't play sports, then there aren't sports. Have, good luck finding some some other people that are going to come in. Right. If if LeBron and and and, and team say they're not going to play, you think there's going to be like a whole bunch of like other black people that are like, "Ooh, I'll play in this NBA." Yeah, like I'll get it. Like, nah, nah, no basketball. <laughs> you don't yeah. get enjoyment now. Like, I mean, you even seen the ripple effect between the, the uh, across the other sports. You know, everybody deaded it. <laughs> get rid of them. Like right now, like white America is just really just screwing up our whole country. And that's not all white Americans, but we'll say that the Trump organ, you know, Trump and his people, that's mostly white people. And clearly, if you gave Trump a report card, it'd be like an F, like, like, a, like an F that's like a yeah. 40, you know, not even close to it. <laughs> uh, right. like, that's white people. That's it. And so they're screwing up our country pretty severely. And now the expectation is that black people need to entertain them and distract them from the chaos while they kill black people. And this, and then to make it even more perverse, they still want college sports to happen. They want college football to happen. Yes. Like these kids don't even get paid. And they're like, you right. need to entertain us. Like, you need to entertain us to draw the money for the school. <laughs> like if you, if you guys don't play sports for basically free, uh, this university won't have money to continue and we won't be entertained while we destroy our whole society we need you to do this it's like right. nah, nah no support. you get nothing bye what do you think of the juxtaposition of this week being also the republican national convention at the same time and like all these people <laughs> you know touting how great the country is as like you flip to the next you know television channel or you go to your twitter feed or your instagram feed and it's like the world is burning bro <laughs> you know it's like <sighs> So when I think of Trump and all these people, like I can't, and I, I think a lot about history. I just can't stop thinking about like the end of like the French monarchy, you know, where like all of these like monarchs throughout Europe, whenever they came crashing down in like the late 1700s, early 1800s, they were just so profoundly out of touch with everything that was going on in their society that in hindsight, it's like the most 
embarrassing, like mind boggling thing. You know, like Mm -hmm. we still talk about Marie Antoinette saying, let them eat cake. And like, and that, but the thing is like when Marie Antoinette said that it wasn't also like she didn't say cake. I think she said brioche, but cake just sounds better. But like, she wasn't trying to be malicious. She was like, all these poor people are like storming the castle and they need food. Okay. Yeah, give them some. (laughs) We'll give them all this brioche. And they're like, we starving in the streets. And you just got like mountains of this decadent food. And you're like, we'll just give it to them. Like, you got to go, lady. Like, you just just got like a stockpile of like gourmet food and we're starving in the streets. Every time the Republicans say something, it, mm-hmm. it it's echoing of like this like vulgar, poshly opulence that is just so out of touch from what happens in our society, and it's just yeah, I, <laughs> it's like what do you say? Like it's, it's it leaves so, you speechless. I at the same time I don't think their being out of touch is much different than you know how out of touch America's been forever because people become out of touch in America when they have to care about black people. That's just how it is. Like when you have to care about people that aren't white, then you become out of touch because America's ethnocidal. So there's a whole infrastructure based around profiting off of the destruction of non-white people and then just acting as though that's like the norm. And that's always okay. Once you never have to extend the humanity, stand at humanity to non-white people. But once right. that you have to care about non-white people, people are like, huh? With you know, so Marie Antoinette, right? all this, these monarchs, it was perfectly okay to never care about the serfs. The serfs mm-hmm. weren't people. Now these serfs are people and you have to care and you're like, oh, here, have some brioche. And it's like, right. get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. Right. You know? <laughs> Prior to that, they were like, oh, look at all this brioche we have. Life is great anybody want brioche everyone gets brioche right toss it out right yeah so it's Um, uh, these people are just it's a no yeah so let's get into our word of the week nerfen sturka uh i hope i pronounced that correctly i think i got that that pretty good that was really good that was pretty solid (laughs) nice so which means nerve strength um like when you know that it means nerve strength it it makes sense when you say it it doesn't sound as crazy yeah nerven sturka oh nerve strength Got it. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, tell us about the word, you know, what's the origin of this word and, you know, why is it the word of the week? How how did you come to it? So I'll say like, I came up with this word prior to all of the Jacob Blake stuff happening. And I thought about maybe changing the word, but as I thought about it more, the word still, it makes sense in this, in this scenario because it means nerve strength. And I like this word because a lot of, like I like soccer a lot and I think soccer in many ways are like these like mini philosophies. Like people will create like a philosophy that they want to exist for 90 minutes that wins a match, you know? And if, and if that, if they can extend that philosophy for like a whole season or two seasons, incredible. That's great. Um, And so like, they're like these like almost like philosophical incubators. And so this German goalkeeper, Manuel Neuer and his team, Bayern Munich and the German national team, this word nervensterka is really important to them because it means nerve strength. And so when you are in a difficult match, 
you don't lose your nerve you keep your nerve strength like when you're you know it's cool under pressure and Mm -hmm. and there's like levels to it where there's you're being cool under pressure and so you don't lose your nerve but there's also the time where like you exude nerve strength no matter what like even when before pressures really even happen you just exude such like a level of of strength and nerve and calm and stillness and like and your demeanor how you talk to people how you practice how you move and so it shows how like one word can have like a really profound impact on how you structure your life and your day and the message you get across to people because like one thing that's really neat about this goalkeeper Manuel Neuer liking this word Narvensterka is like the goalkeeper is the last line of defense you know that's the guy that prevents people from scoring goals and so he has to exude calm all the time and if he exudes that calm that nerve strength that confidence and it transmits to his defense then his defense becomes more calm and confident and that impacts how right. they play and it like it can influence the entire yeah. team the, rever- the reverberation flows through everybody and another thing that's really really cool about this goalkeeper and this word is he does things during soccer matches that like most goalkeepers would never even dare to do he will run out of his goalkeeper box the area where he can use his hand right. he'll run 10 15 yards out of that and win tackles or win headers all sorts of stuff where like if he makes one mistake the goal is wide open it is wide open and right. the team would the other team would have a tap in goal but he does this so consistently that it influences how his entire team plays and how the other team plays because if they know if say for example you play a, a pass over the defense into the space between the defense and the goalie if you know that goalkeeper is going to rush out of the goal and just win that ball, you might not make that pass because that won't be a good pass anymore because it's going to go right to the goalkeeper. But if, if you know the goalie is going to stay in his box and not come out, then you're going to play that pass. And now you have a one-on-one with the goalkeeper and that's a very good chance that you're score a goal. And so nerve strength also creates bold ideas and like a like a level of confidence as you do like the unthinkable that changes the dynamic for everything and so as i thought about nerve strength i thought about how like in this really volatile climate with you know black lives matter and you know we're just just george floyd didn't happen that long ago and now it's jacob blake like there's a need for the black community to make sure that we have nerve strength as we do anything and everything and it's also pretty evident that there's no expectation for the white community and especially law enforcement to have any amount of nerve strength. Yeah. You know, like if they, if they have the, if they see somebody with black skin and they determine that that means he, they're a, he's a threat. Ah, boom, boom, boom. We'll shoot him seven times in the back. He, he broke up a fight and then is now walking to his car. Who knows what's in his car? Oh, right. you know, fear, right? Fear. Not your no nerve people strength. who should have the strongest nerves in in exactly. for handling a situation uh, constantly, uh, you know, don't right. You know? And the the onus is on people of color and our allies to make sure that we have nerve strength all the time. 
you know, and you could, you could even say that like the prep that, you know, MLK and civil rights activists did so that people could withstand beatings and all of that, all of that stuff during the struggle that they knew was going to happen and not lose their cool. That's nerve strength. You got to exude yeah. that confidence throughout the whole time. You know, thinking about the word and, and nerve strength and just like how everything we've talked about today is really centered around nerve strength. Jacob Blake and, and what he was doing and the lack thereof in that situation on the, on the officer's part of nerve strength or even the players uh, in the NBA, you know, taking the uh, step to, to go on strike and kind of stand on their, on what they believe in to get there. But I'm also thinking about just how much that uh, nerve strength in black people and the lack thereof in white people just doesn't mix, you know, because nerve strength is to me, it's a empowerment. It's a, you know, I'm able to be confident and stand, you know, in my rights and, you know, defend what I want to right here. And that defense, that protection, that strength is adverse to white people and their, their motives um, in many situations. Yeah. Like in an ethnocidal society, you know, like white ethnocidal, white essence people, their society is based around dominating anything and everything that they consider, you know, not them. And, you know, by doing that, they're the, 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 the goal is to break people, to intimidate right. people, to like shatter their nerves and, and have people like be like subjugated and submissive. And you counter that by having nerve strength that not only like you don't, you don't break, but you exude confidence. You exert, you exude nerve strength that goes to countless people. And you know, that's, that's, how we've always ended up making change. You know, when you have that nerve strength, you can come up with bold ideas. I think that's right. one of the things that, that I found the most profound about the word. And like one thing that's really neat with like sports and, and soccer in particular is since it's like a, like an incubator where you get a philosophy shown to you in 90 minutes or, right. or a season, not, necessarily like a lifetime you don't need to like live 80 years to then get the idea of this philosophy like you can see how nerve strength makes this goalkeeper act in ways that no goalkeeper before had ever acted and that then but he consistently does it and now when he consistently does it other goalkeepers get taught to act the same way because it's now right. possible. And it's all because like his nerve strength gave him the confidence to be bold in a particular way where it's highly likely that most people would lose their nerve. But he had practiced and cultivated and thought and meditated and done things to make sure that he sustained nerve strength. And now he can do things that people didn't think was possible. And that clearly applies at a, at a larger scale. So I have a question for you. How do you think that the black community can build nerve strength, but in a healthy, non-traumatic way? You know, this podcast is called The Language for Liberation. And so I think a key thing is having a word, a word that you can articulate and meditate on and, and, and say to yourself, because that's, strangely enough, that's it's just how we communicate. And it's not just how we communicate to other people. It's how we communicate to ourselves too, because for something to be real, 
it has to be able to live outside of our head. It has to be able to live in somebody else's space too. And so that's why words are super important. And so yeah. having the word nerve strength or, or, or narvensterka, being able to say it and think about it. And when you do something that doesn't exude nerve strength for you to, to be able to like politely not chastise yourself, but say, Hey, you know, nerve strength and kind of remind right. yourself like that's the subtle practice. I think, I think the U S due to it being quite ethnocidal and not the, the goal is essentially to become like a white person who doesn't need any sort of nerve strength and just gets money all the time because like you have a whole crop of like black and brown people that work for you forever. Um, right means that there's no cultivation of, of nerve strength. There's a cultivation of worrying and anxiety mm-hmm. and people feeling that it's perfectly okay to worry all the time and have anxiety all the time. And that's just inevitable. And we feel that way because we have words to say what that feeling is. And then we have people made other words to say that that's perfectly okay. And that just happens. Right. It's inevitable, blah, 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 blah. Nah, it's crazy. You need another word to, to get counter, beyond that. To counter that. Like, you know, like there's plenty mm. of times where like, for example, like I, when I go ride a bicycle, I wear a helmet. Mm-hmm. But like, I also knock on wood, I've never had an accident on my bike because like I have nerve strength when I ride my bike. Like I'm really focused. Yeah. I'm locked in and I know I can do what I need to do and there's no casual. I'm not out in space and I'm not too busy being worried about cars or whatever. It's like, I'm just locked in, focused. I'm riding my bike, right. I do know that like, if I make one mistake, that could be like a disaster for me. So it makes sense to wear a helmet. But like, I wear a helmet not because I'm worried. I wear a helmet because like, I know the percentages. I know like what would happen. Mm-hmm. That, I know what would happen if I didn't. Mistake. But throughout right. the entire process, all I have is nerve strength. I don't have anxiety. I don't worry. I, I, I'm, that's what happens. You're locked in on it, right? Locked in. And, you know, like, I think I'd say in English, we'd say locked in. Now it makes more sense to say, I got nerve strength and I'm going to cultivate nerve strength. And I can tell somebody else nerve strength, you know, just like during the civil rights struggle when, you know, like peaceful, like um, Martin Luther King's practice of, uh, of non-resistance. People had to practice that. You had to have, you had to have a language to say, this is what we're doing. This is how it works. We got to practice it. So I think having the word nerve strength or, or narfensterka uh, is helpful. That's like the first step. You know, I think it even leads to the half line comment from before in that the word leans to the knowledge that we have to work past it. So it actually builds an acceptance because, you know, the traumas that have stopped us from telling the stories that could even though the traumatic could overall move us forward or being held away from us. And then our representation isn't there. The real stories aren't there. Those things aren't being passed down to us. So it's about having the knowledge, the wisdom and the language of what's next, you know, cause even to say that, you know, knowing breezy creativity and it's like, we have to know in order to have the creativity to come up with the words that would describe what's next. And totally. I think that's what's ultimately been a hindrance. Totally. And like I'll say, you know, we, we have a project that we're going to be launching in a, you know, a couple months about the, you know, our, our altars project with the, it's like connecting to Day of the Dead. That's a structure that I think helps give people nerve strength. 
Mm-hmm. You know, right now in the U.S., people are really scared to talk about death or to deal with the emotions that come with people that have passed away and all that kind of stuff because they'll lose their nerve. They, right. they, they'll be too concerned that they won't be able to handle their emotions or, or what people will say about them or something or blah, blah, blah. There's all sorts of like fear and anxiety and, and, and worries that come with this, this practice. So you create the practice. And that practice will help give people nerve strength and help right. them become better at things. And that's so, so having the word is helpful. And then once you have a word, then you can create practices that help you do the good things. I think we have a lot of words for bad things and then words for saying that these bad things are inevitable and, uh, and good. Um, and now people just feel for perfectly comfortable just doing bad things all the time. And that they feel justified and they cultivate a, a whole existence of just worrying and having a lack of nerve forever. And it's like, that's crazy. And so, right. so, so yeah. So that's the word. Narvensterka. Learn if you're watching soccer. <laughs> Dope, man. Well, um, you know, thank you for that overview of, of the word this weekend, you know, also for, you know, touching on the other topics that are going on. Uh, in the world, you know, that informed it. Um, I guess we'll wrap it up. You know, this has been another episode of Language for Liberation. Nerfin Sturka, this is your boy OG Baca and uh, the great philosopher, Mr. Barrett Holmes Pittner. Uh, you can follow SCL Radio on all of your favorite podcast platforms and check us out online at scl.community. And with that being said, we'll highlight you guys next week. Yeah, thanks for listening. <laughs>